Shut up and sit down. Welcome to the Edu Third Space podcast, where we address the important questions what is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? Hello, listeners. Welcome back. Today, Colleen Pollicky is on the podcast. You may recognize her last name. I spoke with her husband, Dakota, who works for the Lumina Foundation, in a previous episode. But today, Colleen has joined us to talk about local decision-making for public schools. In this case, the local is the community, so community members as well as parents. And she is speaking about local school councils within Chicago public schools. And local school councils are a part of the public schooling institution. In the next episode, I'm going to be speaking with a parent who is working with a group or a couple of groups from the outside of the public system trying to influence the public schooling system. And then following that episode, we'll continue our focus on decision making, but we're taking it all the way up to the federal level in that episode and talking about particularly the impetus for why and how the federal government makes decisions for public schooling. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and as always, please donate to keep the conversation going um, and to improve it, improve this podcast by going to www.edu3rdspace.com. And please subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast and write us a review. Those reviews help us to be found by other people. Enjoy. Hi, Colleen. Hey, Sam. <laughs> How are you? Good. How are you? I'm all right. Hanging in. Good. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Happy to be here. Good. Good. All right. So pretty much with every podcast episode, the way I start is if you can just give us a brief overview of your experience with education up to this point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I currently live in Indiana, but I'm originally from Illinois. Um, uh, went through um, elementary and high school in a rural community in Illinois um, and went to Illinois State University uh, for English education. Um, and then through ISU, um, went through their urban teacher preparation program um, and ended up student teaching in Chicago um, and then moved to Chicago to teach her afterwards. So I student taught um, at Wells Community uh, High School on the west side and then went on to teach um, high school English and Richards Career Academy, which is on 51st and Ashland. So the back of the yards in Inglewood community. Um, and I was working there and then, you know, decided that I wanted um, to uh, go back to school for education to get another degree. Um, a lot of people around me had master's degree and whatnot. And at the time I wanted to um, go into public or administration in uh, public schools. Um, but a lot of the people around me that I saw were getting alternative education degrees. So kind of quick and dirty Concordia degrees, no disrespect there, but it would just be, you know, like a 12 month program. And I just didn't find that robust enough. Um, and part of it might've been that I was young or green or whatever. Um, but I just felt like a program like that wouldn't give me the type of education experience um, that I wanted. Um, so I decided to go back for my PhD um, and ended up at Indiana University. Um, I went there because they had an opening for their um, urban program. So, um, you know, you work there, um, but kind of preparing undergraduate student teachers to student teach in Chicago public schools, which was perfect for me having come from there. So that's the reason I chose to go to IU. Um, and I'm currently a candidate there um, with trying to get a degree in education policy with a concentration in educational leadership. Um, candidate right now, working on my dissertation, trying to get out of there. I feel you, sister. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, uh, you know, the purpose we have, we, I, I'm having you on the <laughs> podcast today, is to talk about local control in, um, decision-making in the education sector. But before we move on to that kind of broader discussion, how would you define education? 
That's a really great question. Um, I don't necessarily describe, know what education is, but I think the purpose of education is social mobility. Um, the ability to kind of, you know, move up in whatever way that looks. And for some people, education is liberation in that way. Um, but for me, liberation in education is social mobility. So being able to um, work up whatever kind of ladder that it is you're looking for, whether that's um, social economic, whether that's, you know, raising your family from where they currently are, but some way to raise up. Um, and I, part of a lot of that social mobility piece is getting a better job. Like, I think we get education so we get a better job, we get better employed, we make more money, we can, you know, elevate our family, elevate ourselves. Um, and I know that's not a, uh, a really attractive answer. I mean, we like to think that education is for, um, you know, searching for truth and, you know, liberation of your mind and, you know, these greater ideals and, a, you know, public, uh, um, a, what's the word? Um, a right. Um, but I think, you know, I think that education is a lot more tactical than that, that it's for that social mobility piece of getting a better job and improving your life. So, yeah. All right. So when you um, are describing education, are you thinking of it strictly in a formal setting, like going to school um, or somehow enrolling in classes, whatnot? Yeah, so that's a really great question. I don't think education is learning. Um, so learning and kind of small e education happens all the time, every single day with every interaction that you have with someone, anything you read, just, you know, just general learning that happens minute by minute. Um, and I don't consider that education in the way that we're talking about. So stuff like that, I mean, I think can happen at any point in time and it's just for your own betterment, but capital E education, um, we have institutionalized, whether it should be or not, we have formalized that process. Um, and so within that formalized process of education, I think that's for social mobility. Um, we've put confines on it, we've put money behind it, we've put certificates on it, and it's a very formalized process. And so that's what I'm talking about when I think through the social mobility piece. Okay. Okay. Just to clarify that. Um, okay. So you um, used to work in Chicago. So we're mostly going to talk about your experience there or just as a practitioner in general, rather than as um, a PhD student. Um, mm -hmm. So when you were working in Chicago, what was your um, level of familiarity, <clears throat> excuse me, with um, localized decision making? Yeah, um, so in Chicago, I uh, cut my teeth, I was saying earlier, with a program that was urban teacher prep. Um, and through that um, program, we had to do internships at community-based organizations. And so I worked at a community-based organization in the Pilsen neighborhood and another one in Auburn Gresham. Um, and through that process, you know, really got to see how community members and community organizations on the ground level within the neighborhoods were really transforming the community or working to transform them. Um, and so I entered into urban education and to public school teaching with this very community uh, minded way of thinking about education. Um, so there's that. And then when I was working in CPS, um, obviously every public school in Chicago has a local school council. Um, and so I knew that existed within the school and my last year there got elected to be on the local school council. Um, I didn't serve my entire time because I ended up leaving to come to IU, but I was able to serve on the, on the board there or the council okay. there. Yeah, can you describe um, for an audience who maybe isn't familiar with um, what a local school council is in Chicago? Like, what is it and then how does it sit in the larger system? Yeah, um, local school councils are very interesting to me. Um, they uh, are exactly what it sounds like, localized school councils or like little boards um, at each of a Chicago public school. So 600 plus schools, every single one of them has a local school council. Um, they have 12 to 13 members. And what's um, special about LSCs um, are that the, is that the power lies with parents and community members. So of the 12 to 13 members, six are parents. Uh, two are community members and the remaining ones are school-based employees. So there's one non-teacher staff member, one teacher, 
uh, or two teachers, the principal, and then in high schools, there's a student member. So the majority of the power is with the community members and the parents. Um, what's really interesting about them um, is you do not need to be a US citizen to be an LSC member. You don't have to speak English, you don't have to be registered to vote, and you don't have to have any education credential. You just need to live in the attendance boundary of the school and hopefully have an interest in bettering the school that you're working at. Um, so because of that, knowing that there's 12 to 13 members at 600 plus schools across Chicago, LSEs are actually the largest and most, could be the most influential source of power in Chicago. Um, it's more than our 50 aldermen, it's more than any other um, formalized structure of um, control or influence um, is at the LSC level. Um, Local school councils have been around since the 70s, but not with much power during that time. They were um, you know, more uh, symbolic, if you will. Um, but in the 1980s, when the first black mayor, Harold Washington, he put together this education summit and um, there's 198 points that came out of it as part of the Chicago School Reform Act. Um, but one of them was LSCs and it was just a sweeping change. Um, it was you know, on the forefront of innovation in the nation as far as local councils go. Um, and so some things that they have control over to this day is the school improvement plan or the um, CIWP is what Chicago has called it before. The local school councils have final say over that, so kind of the direction of the school. Um, they actually renew principal contracts now. So before then, principals, before the 80s, principals had tenure and could really stay at a school for you know really as long as they wanted. Um, but then through the LSC reform, um, principals get, um, are renewed every three years. So the LSC is the one who selects the principal and every three years looks over their contracts, looks at their performance and says whether they keep them or not. Um, they can provide recommendation and teacher hires. They have um, control over school funds. So what's spent where. It has to stay in the particular budget or bucket. So like money allocated for maintenance has to go to maintenance purposes, but how it's spent within that um, is up to the LSC. Um, and depending on how they wield their power, um, LSCs can also in, um, influence things like school safety, different discipline policies, infrastructure, um, parent school relationships, class size, um, are all examples of things that they've had control over, even though that's not necessarily formalized within the description of the LSCs. Um, so LSCs have a, have a lot of power, I guess, um, with that. And, um, as time gone on, their um, local school council's power has been diminished. Um, in the mid-90s, um, under daily, um, it was revised so that local school councils that had failing schools, so failing test scores, um, their LSEs was just advisory. So the, it was the um, elected school board that had the you know, most say over the school, and the LSE was just advisory in that way, um, which is contentious because um, schools that were failing um, were communities of color, um, where representation was, you know, <clears throat> low anyway within the city. Um, so there's lots to be unpacked there. But um, so they've changed a little bit over the years, but are um, still, you know, present in every public school. Okay, and how seriously um, does the principal or teachers take the LSEs? Um, I guess, do they, do they acknowledge them as kind of equal partners in decision making? Maybe not so much teachers, but the principals or people who are involved in LSEs, or is it kind of just going through the motions of, you know, this is a decision making body that we have, but at the end of the day, it's our school. Yeah, um, that is a great question and it varies. It's varied from the time in which LSEs have been around as well as schools around. Um, so a little bit of history for you. Mm -hmm. um, when LSEs uh, were made in the uh, 1980s, um, there was a lot of concern if they would work or not. They're you know, worried about um, corruption and voter turnout and candidates, like having the right number of candidates because there's gonna be so many seats open for it. Um, and so because of that, it was turned into a really positive thing. Um, there was over $600,000 that was invested just in 
um, media coverage for the local school councils before the first election. Um, so for example, they um, turned out a 20 page newspaper completely dedicated to LSCs that had editorials and full page ads and information on threats to the LSCs and information on how to run for, um, for your council. Um, there was LSC training groups that were not formalized within the act, but just done by different uh, community-based organizations so that the communities were ready to become LSC members, um, preparing them for not just how to apply, but once you get there, you know, what are Robert's rules? How do you run a council? You know, those basic things. Um, and so there is all of this investment on the front end. In those first, you know, five, six years of LSCs, they wielded a lot of power. They had um, high uh, voter turnout. They had a lot of candidates. Um, there was something like 17,000 people running for 6,000 seats in the, um, in the city. So way more people running than there are seats available, which is great for managing things like corruption um, and uh, accurate representation. So the makeup, the social, economic, race, racial background of the schools was represented within the councils. Um, and I think that's a clear line between the investment that was put in front of them and then what they were able to accomplish. Um, during those first few years, there was so much research that came out from the CCSR and a lot of other research bodies that showed um, all these positive impacts that you know, that the board was making, pro that the councils were making progress, that they were um, managed without corruption, that the election was uncorrupt, you know, all of these positive things that came out of it. Um, and I think they had a very serious, power in place within the school they were taken very seriously um but as time gone on that as time has gone on um that investment that you saw at the beginning has just you know gotten less and less um and with that you've seen the power of lses um lower as time went on that said it really depends on what school district you're in some um wealthier neighborhoods neighborhoods with more community activism lses are it's as if 1988 was still was still happening mm -hmm. um you know a lot of people running for them um, a lot of time and investment put into the election, um, really, you know, having meetings that had a lot of debate behind them, people showing up, you know, a lot of participation within the board. So I'm thinking of neighborhoods like, um, like Albany Park, um, I know Belding Elementary, they have a really great, robust LSC thing happening with them. Um, but other schools within Albany Park even um, don't have that kind of participation. Um, so it really depends not necessarily even just community by community, but school by school within that community and what parents attend there, um, what community-based organizations are like around there and just how they kind of get the word out about local school councils. Um, so in some cases, to answer your question, they're taken very seriously and they have a lot of power and it's a formalized structure within the building. Whereas other schools, it is just this decision-making power that they have to get through to make certain things happen. And it's really the principle that holds the power behind it. Definitely true for the councils with like failing schools, quote unquote, um, with where the, where the LSE is just advisory. That's definitely the case for them. But other schools, everyone kind of knows that the principle, despite only taking up one seat out of a 12 to 13 member committee, that it's really the principle who, you know, wields the most power on it. Um, and so it really, really just depends on the community engagement within a school. Um, yeah. And how do you, obviously this would be a historical perspective, but when LSEs uh, started, like, you know, under um, Washington, there was no mayor mayoral, sorry, I have a hard time saying that word, <laughs> mayoral control over the district. It was still an elected school board. So do you, in your like research or understanding of LSCs, was there a shift in how much power they actually had? And did kind of the decline in interest in these coincide with the mayor taking over the school district? Yeah, so the biggest formalized shift in power away from LSCs was in 1995 when um, mayoral appointed school boards kind of came back with all of its glory. Um, and it, 
Chicago's been mayoral elected since the 1800s, like late 1800s, and it wasn't until that education summit in the 80s where it kind of changed a little bit. But so, you know, by 1995, it was just kind of going back to how it had been that whole time. Um, but yeah, there was a lot. This was all kind of in the change to testing, too, um, because from 1990 to 1995, the Daily Machine kind of came out with a lot of propaganda against LSCs, um, namely saying that LSCs had, you know, were corrupt, were um, you know, it's all these like negative parts of it that I've mentioned, but also that they weren't improving test scores. Um, and this was kind of as test scores started ramping up in Chicago. Um, and it's interesting because at that point, LSEs would have been around for, you know, five-ish years. So, you know, you could argue if in five years you could improve test scores through an, you know, an elected decision-making body. Um, but it's also notable that those test scores were in communities of color that were historically underserved anyway. Um, so there's some layers there to be, to be seen. Um, but yes, uh, the resurgence of a mayoral appointed board and the diminishing of LSE's power all happened in 1995. Um, and it was kind of well-designed by Daly through that media campaign, kind of the slander, I guess, if you will, um, to the early part of the 90s. Okay, and do you know if there was um, a, another kind of shift, like a diminishment of, I don't even know if that's the right word, but diminishment of, power when because you mentioned test scores becoming more important and more prominent well that happened again you know in 2001 with no child left behind so it was not only a city issue it then became or you know city state slash state issue it then became a federal issue that you needed to you know have a certain test score um, or you know, resources were going to be taken away from your school or you could potentially close down. Mm -hmm. Do you know if there was any shift during that time as well, as far as diminishing power? Yeah, so no more power was taken away to my knowledge, um, because by that point, by 1995, they'd already said if your school is failing, then your, your council mm -hmm. became advisory. Um, so I think maybe the metrics for what constituted failing schools um, changed, but I think that policy that LSCs became advisory remained the same. Um, and if you look at like graphs of LSC engagement, it's just a steady decline. Like there's not really any like big peaks of like diminishing more or like accelerating. It's just one big line down. Um, and so I don't necessarily know if it was impacted more by it because it has just been steadily impacted the whole time. Okay. Yeah. So it was just they maybe broaden the scope because, you know, like school attendance became, you know, an important metric. And so maybe it just yeah. was more than just the test scores. Yeah, that would be my guess is just as we get more and more data driven, you have more data that kind of proves that you're failing, I guess, right. um, that can be added to it. Yeah. Yeah. So part of my, as you know, part of my dissertation research is in Auckland, New Zealand. And in New Zealand, you know, they have... Um, basically two units of decision-making over schools. So they have um, centralized mechanism, which isn't supposed to be that big and impactful, but it has grown to be over time. And then each school has their own board, if you will. Um, so it's a board of trustees. And so one of the concerns, and this happened in the late 80s is when the bill was passed and it was kind of like the bureaucracy has gotten too bloated, it's too big, we need to break it up. So schools are now in control of themselves, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so they have even more control than an LSC. And one of the concerns has become that they, the parent, not all parents are equally equipped to manage a school, essentially, mm -hmm. you know, to make decisions um, for a school. So obviously LSEs have less power than, you know, a board that the school is basically only accountable to. But would you say that that is an issue or have you noticed that as being an issue with LSEs is that some LSEs are more equipped to make decisions for the schools, whereas others are not? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'll start off with saying that uh, starting in 95, there is an 18 hours of training that was mandatory for elected LSC members, um, which on its face is good um, because, you know, you 
you know, training's good. Um, but it was a huge hindrance to a lot of parents. So single parents, parents who worked a lot, parents who worked multiple jobs, parents who had childcare duties, you know. Um, and so it was actually very hindering to participation within it and left a very specific type of parents who could participate or community member for that matter. Um, Prior to that, though, I think I mentioned um, that a lot of community-based organizations took it upon themselves to train um, and prepare local school council or potential local school council members. Um, and that your question is actually one that was heavily researched and concerned about um, before that first 1989 um, election was that, you know, will we have qualified people? Will they be um, enabled to, um, to run a board, you know, have that kind of requisite knowledge, knowing that there was no education requirement for it. Um, and a lot of research was done after that first year of local school councils, and they really didn't find any concerns in that way. They thought that LSCs were running well, that they had students' interests in mind, um, that it was going well. Um, so that's just kind of research, and there's, a, I can't remember the studies, but there was probably three or four studies that came out of just that first year and at the, looking into your specific question about, you know, are parents equipped to run or community members equipped to run LSEs. Um, and so that's good. Um, that said, you know, having been on an LSE and gone through those training parts, you know, I didn't necessarily feel fully equipped for to really know how a council should run or kind of know those basic like council board 101 things, you know, like Robert's rules and like having quorum and like those basic things to get through. Um, and so when I was on the council, I saw that a lot with the uh, parent who was the, you know, the chair of the board, um, which is having to rely a lot on the principal for just you know, how you take a motion and how you pass, um, pass a decision and just those basic ideas of how to run a board that, um, that this parent didn't necessarily have um, and didn't feel comfortable getting that information herself. And so she did depend a lot on the principal to guide her through that. And that caused a power, like power differential. Um, and it wasn't nefarious on the principal's part, but because he was teaching her in in real time how to get through a board meeting um there's a lot of you know deferential movements after that so anything that the principal would say like oh we really need this for the budget or need that um you know they're going to approve because he's the one even getting them through the meeting um and so i do think that that is true that their preparation for parents and community members or teachers or principals or whoever's on the board to be able to um you know, acts, you know, to be able to work in there in an effective way, I think is a definite concern. Okay. Yeah. And I kind of got alluded to, or we touched this question um, earlier, but I'm very interested in kind of local control, like bringing as much of the decision making about education down the levels as possible. Um, but it's still confined within the system. You know, so the system is already set up and there, you know, are things that have to happen. So how authentic do you think like parent and community voice is on LSEs? Can like, you say more about authenticity there? Like, does it represent parents and community members um, kind of at large? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And again, I think it really depends on the neighborhood and on the school you're in. I'm thinking about um, Little Village, Chicago, kind of southwest side, um, you know, and kind of partnership with Enlace, which is the community-based organization there, or one of the community-based organizations there. Um, so well organized and so well informed and just has the heart of Little Village, you know, at the forefront with every decision they make. So their LSC elections are rigorous and they are electing highly qualified people who really are, have an understanding of the community and what they need. Um, but in other places, you I mean, you're pulling people out of, you know, the, um, the election is on the fall um, uh, report card pickup. And so you're just like pulling people out of work card pickup to like, please come vote, you know, like be a part of this, you know? And so other schools, I mean, they're really just trying to make quorum. So you're asking parents that, you know, are already close to the principal, already close to a teacher to please run for this. And there's like some special interests that um, get privileged in those places. Um, and so communities and in schools in highly active uh, communities and highly active neighborhoods, um, 
I think that the, that the school or the parents and the community are well represented, but in other places, I definitely don't think that's the case. Um, and that's how you see it too. I mean, uh, how you see it when um, there's few candidates running. So in 2014, 4,000 community members and parents ran for 5,000 seats. Um, so one, a lot of seats were left open, um, but mostly people ran uncontested. Um, and that allows a lot of the power to lie with few of the people. Um, it allows, you know, staff or principals um, to stack local school council members with parents that they know that they like, community members that they uh, like and agree with. Um, and so I think there's definitely room um, when there's not enough candidates running um, and low voter turnout. I think there's definitely room to, for the LSC to not be representative of the needs of the community. Yeah, because I kind of think about it as like I do with teachers, like the majority of people who become teachers enjoyed school. So I wonder if the majority of parents who want and community members who want to be involved in these LSCs like have already bought into, you know, one, the idea of school as an important institution in the community, um, but also like are already believing in the mission and so just kind of carry it along. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think that that is something that they just got right in 1989. I mean, with $600,000 of media of money going to like media attention and making sure people were educated about LSCs and just the amount of, you know, money, capital, everything that went into preparing the community of parents for the local school councils, um, they just got it right the first time around. Um, and I think that will based on like the research that um, came out of that first few years, um, they had people that weren't necessarily just in the pockets of principals or already heavily involved in schools. It was new community members who had heard about LSUs who wanted to get involved. Um, and you see a lot of really positive things come out of that. Um, one example um, is from the Morgan Park High School back in the 80s um, had the same, it was, had been a white neighborhood um, that got gentrified or that had white flight and so it became a black neighborhood. And um, the principal though was still this you know, older white man who had been in the community for decades um, and obviously did not represent his constituents or his school at all. Um, and so after the first LSC, you know, the, um, the local school council represented you know, the racial makeup of the school. And so they um, ended up voting that principal out after the first few years. Um, and it was, you know, highly contested. He obviously had a big problem with that. He was tenured before. He'd been there for decades. He was a big part of the community, but no longer represented them. Um, and I think that's a case where, you know, that shows how the, the members who came on the LSD in those first few years didn't necessarily just have the interest of the school, weren't just like in the pockets of the principal. These were new people who came in, who saw the problem within the school, saw the problem representation and worked to change it. Um, and I just think that's a testament to how well organized that for those first few years were. Okay. Yeah. So kind of going along those lines, like if you were to give advice to the mayor, the school board, schools, whomever it may be about how to like kind of bring a resurgence in, um, getting the LSEs, you know, popular again and as like really a place for community voice, what advice would you give them? Yeah, um, so one, I think that the effort has to be holistic. It has to be from the school district. There has to be a huge um, investment from the school district, just like there was before, uh, but also needs to be in partnership with schools on a local level, but community-based organizations. I think that's where you'll get the real powers through community-based organizations. Um, and I think there's three major things that schools can do. Um, is one, just simply spread the word about local school councils. Um, I would bet a lot of people just don't even know that LSEs exist, nor understand the vast power LSEs could have if they're all, you know, used to their full extent. Um, I don't say it lightly when it could be the largest, is the largest body or decision-making power within the city. And that has a lot of transformation behind it or could have a lot. Um, and I think just simply spreading the word about how powerful LSEs could be um, will go a long way. Um, I mentioned earlier that Delivered Everyone's Front Door back in 1989 was a 20-page newspaper about LSEs and all the threats with it and all the things that could happen, you know, information, um, which 
is a huge media effort. Um, and so doing things like that now, whether it be through social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but also through community-based organizations, websites, um, any sort of way to get this media attention out, um, just spread the word, I think is important. Um, the other thing, I think they, we need to encourage community candidacy. Um, and so doing that through information setting, uh, information um, meetings, um, helping, you know, whether it's through community-based organizations or through the school, helping parents and community members to fill out the information if they need to take it to central office, accompanying people to central office, offering translation services, helping with transportation, all those little barriers that come up um, that would stop someone from, from becoming a candidate. Because the um, one of the biggest threats to LSEs is just having few candidates or not the right candidates. Um, so any way that you can encourage candidacy at the community level, I think would be a good effort. Um, and then last, just turning out the vote. So community-based community organizations making a big effort to get people into the schools to vote. Um, and that can be door knocking day of, like literally going around your attendance boundary and pulling people out of their houses and getting them to the school. Um, people at the school, making sure to get them from the school door to the voting area. Um, you know, there can be a lot of anxiety based on your own schooling experience, how comfortable you even feel walking into a school. Um, so making sure there's a community member there from a community-based organization who's a welcoming face, who's going to get you to the right place, who's going to speak the language you speak, who's going to explain the process to you and explain why it's so important. Um, and so making efforts in those three big areas, spreading the word, encour encouraging community candidacy, and turning out the vote, I think, um, are the three things we got right in the 80s that I think um, would make a big difference now. Okay. And you had mentioned in your introduction that you are the urban associate instructor or were up until last week, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the associate instructor for the urban program. Um, which sits within Global Gateway for Teachers at Indiana University. Um, what, how do you talk to your students or how did you talk to your pre-service teachers about local school councils and their role in the community, if you did? Yeah, um, so for students who were on site in Chicago, um, one of the requirements is to go to a local school council meeting. Well, they, it's a like a local meeting of some sort, but they're highly encouraged to use, go to a local school council meeting. Um, and simply just attending, I think, shows them a lot because you're seeing decision making made right in front of you. And for some students, they are seeing these really robust processes, you know, with people really, you know, getting in there, rolling up their sleeves, you know, doing their part. And then other schools, you see meetings that are barely advertised that take place in the middle of the school day that, you know, are having people just struggling, finding quorum and um, really just seeing that process, the good, the bad. Um, and so that's one thing that they're encouraged is to be a part of it. Just go attend. Um, some of them will find that they're the only people attending the meeting, um, which is a big change from or not something you want to see in your local school council meeting. You want people to be there. Um, and so, you know, they'll find that they're the only ones there and that'll really light a fire under them about how, you know, communities and people should be involved in those processes. Um, during the prep phase before they go on site, um, I don't necessarily focus on local school councils. I focus on community-based organizations. Um, so kind of starting in that bigger area, but within the community. So introducing them to um, just what a CBO, CBO is, some of their roles that they play in the community, looking at really good community-based organizations around the city, and then narrowing to look at them um, within the neighborhood that they're gonna be living in. Um, and usually, not this year, but typically we take a trip to Chicago and we spend an entire afternoon just kind of speed dating with every community-based organization um, in that neighborhood. Um, so they can see all the good that's happening there. Um, and while that's not directly tied to your know, LSC specifically, um, my point there is to try to show how people on the ground level are making changes for their own neighborhood, that it doesn't have to come from this greater policy. It doesn't have to be 606 on the whole. It can be, you know, community level, street by street level change. Um, and, you know, and there's direct like lines of connection there between that and local school councils. Very cool. And how do they um, reflect on you, you kind of mentioned, you know, it might agitate them if they notice people aren't there, uh, but were there any other sort of insights that were notable to you that people took away from attending those meetings? Yeah, um, 
One, starting with not about the meetings, but just about knowing about community-based organizations, like students are always shocked that, you know, they just don't know that that exists. And I, I think part of it is uh, the narrative that you hear a lot on network television about places like Chicago or major urban areas, um, you know, a lot about violence and not a lot about community activism. Um, and so I think that is part of it, but they just generally don't know about community-based organizations, so don't even understand the way that communities play a role within particular neighborhoods and even the strength of neighborhoods. Um, and so I think there's a surprise there. Um, I think students, um, when they attend the local school council meetings, um, it depends what ones they go to. Some leave really impressed with their parents and with their schools um, and they want to be at that school. They get really invigorated by it because of you know, the justice that you're seeing, seeing happening right in front of you. Um, and on the other end, you know, it really is bothersome to them because they've done all this learning about, you know, social justice in urban areas. And then you see a really, um, a source of justice in decision-making that's so within your reach um, that's just not being utilized correctly for whatever number of reasons. Um, and so I think that that is invigorating in a different sense, but similarly to the way when you see it run well, I think it's really motivating to see one run not well because you can be a part of that change, um, especially for you know young urban educators who are going to Chicago with a purpose. You know, I think it can be really motivating to them to be a part of that decision-making body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's I mean what um, you and just the broader uh, Global Gateway program provides is this idea that a school is within a community, and I think at least Indiana University School of Education, and I would guess that most others don't really talk about, you know, you're, you're going to a school of education as an undergrad student, most likely to become a teacher, and you have to be certified to be a teacher. So everything is wrapped around the certification and licensure, and sometimes maybe it deviates from that, but I often think that you know, they just don't talk about the community that's surrounding the school. It's just like, here is how you teach in a school. Right. Full stop. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. And that's how, um, like, I feel very fortunate because that's how the community-based structure is how I even went to become a teacher anyway. Um, going, it was, it's called Chicago Teacher Education Pipeline through Illinois State University, run at the time by Dr. Robert Lee. Um, and the whole foundation of teaching and education there is community-based, that the strength that you kind of live and die by the strength of your community and the community that the school is in. Um, and it's not the teacher level, it's not the student level, it's not the school level, but it's the community level that matters most and student success and the success of the city. Um, and it, yeah, it's a different orientation than I think most students get. Um, but when you do, I just think as far when it comes down to things like local, local control, local school councils, um, that's where you can see the weight of the community within it if you kind of approach education through that orientation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now you're making me think maybe I should retract my statement a little bit and say <laughs> that if you're not in a program that's training you to work in a particular area then I wonder if that's the reason why it's more absent, especially in places like Bloomington, like hardly any of those teachers are going to work at Bloomington. You know, it's just like they happen to major in education at this university where rather than I went to Illinois State to become a teacher in Chicago. Um, obviously with Global Gateway, that brings that in a little bit, but it's not a pronounced mission. Of, yeah. I think a lot of schools of education. Yeah, and you know, that's always been one of I, kind of my arguments for teacher prep is that I don't think that there is or should be such thing as just a blanket teacher that I'm, you know, teach English and I can teach wherever. Um, I think we're teachers within certain places. Um, and that's what I think we should spend more of undergrad figuring out is not, you know, most people walk in knowing what they want to teach or that they want to be a teacher, but we don't spend enough time talking about where do you want to teach. Um, even if it's as simple as rural, suburban, urban, um, being able to have explicit conversations about that and where you would be best to teach because you can't just enter the workforce as a blank a teacher you have to enter the workforce as a teacher in this area or a teacher with a specialization within the community and I think those are our best teachers um, I think the closest we get to in some 
teacher prep classes is saying like, oh, go to a basketball game when you're teaching, you know, check out what your students are doing in after school programs. Um, and I think what they're trying to say there is get involved in the community, but it goes so far beyond just after school activities and involves a greater, you know, just geographical kind of like hand uh, extension, you know, to these other places. And so, um, yeah, I think that, that our best teachers are ones who are prepared to teach in certain places um, because the context for education really just depends on where you're going to teach. Um, and just a regular teacher who's prepared to teach anywhere is not going to thrive the best in those particular localities. Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit because you made me think of something. So in a place like Chicago, teachers are required to live in Chicago. And for some people, this gives this false idea that you live in the community where you teach. Well, mm -hmm. both of us have lived in Chicago. We both know that one neighborhood to the next, very different. Mm -hmm. So how, what is your perspective on whether or not teachers should live in the community that they teach? And I don't mean are required to live, you know, we're not gonna mandate it necessarily, mm -hmm. but kind of what is your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, in theory, I think that's a great idea that you should have to do that, you know, knowing neighbors, being able to walk to school, seeing your kids on the block, I think that is such a great idea. And um, in practice, not really possible, you know, just because of like housing prices and housing availability and um, any number of things, you know, um, having your own family and schools that you send them to and whatnot. Um, but it'd be great if we did. Um, what I do argue is that at some point, every teacher should live in the neighborhood where they teach, whether that's in student teaching, whether that's in clinicals, whether that's just your first couple years teaching, you live in your community, um, knowing that most of us, when we get up there, are just bopping around from your long lease to the other um, in our apartments, um, that at some point, making the choice to live where you teach. Um, it makes you part of the community. It also just lets you see what your students live through. You know, if you yourself are too uncomfortable to um, live in a house wherever it might be, um, you know, a place there, a place you're uncomfortable with, or if you feel unsafe walking to the local store, or the you know, the neighborhood store, um, you know, imagine what your students go through being there all the time. You know, at, um, at my school where I taught. Um, there was like a convenience store a couple blocks away and I would walk over and get myself a soda, you know, anytime the weather was nice. And you'd have other teachers and administrative staff in the building being like, you really shouldn't walk over there alone. Like it's not safe to do that. And all I could think about was all the students who walk to school every single day um, along that same path or other paths. Can't know that unless you're, you know, walking in the streets of your own um, school. Um, a lot of teachers are only going from the parking lot to the school building back to the parking lot and, you know, back to their, you know, very comfortable home. Um, and that's just not enough. Um, and so even if you're only doing it for one year or a couple of years, you know, finding a way to live in a community or close to the community where your students are, just so you have an idea of what the day-to-day -day life is. Um, I just don't think that you can um, authentically say that you know your students well until you know how they live. Um, and you know, you can't be in their house, but you can be in their neighborhood. Um, you can see what their bus routes look like or what their you know, walking paths are like. Yeah. So are there any other than LSEs and um, kind of like living, teaching in a community, are there other ideas or suggestions you would have for increasing kind of community involvement in schools or um, local control over schooling? Um, do you mean increasing it for, for who? For um... Just having, I guess, if you think about the school as the center of the community, and in a place like Chicago, that's more so the case than like a suburban area, especially mm -hmm. if they have grade centers, you know, they're the schools in nobody's neighborhood, basically. Right. Um, so you can think about it in terms of Chicago or just schools broadly. What would you recommend for in increasing parent involvement and community control over um, schools and like what would be a vision for you for really making schools the center of the community? Yeah, um, I think if we put more of our resources in communities, um, 
that the communities are going to take care of schools. Um, so the more we can invest in making our communities really strong places, making every community in Chicago or wherever you are a great place to live, um, having economic um, opportunities in all of them, having places you can buy your groceries where you can go get dinner with your family, um, having good schools there, good local school options. Um, that doesn't mean you should take away you know, school choice, um, but having good options that are down the block from your house um, I think is good for schools, good for communities, good for the city. And so more of our resources should go to making communities really strong because communities are gonna take care of what they need to within their within those you know, blocks that they're there. Um, and so sometimes I think we get hyper-focused on you know, fixing this one school. This one school has like low test scores, you know, they have high teacher turnover, so we're gonna invest all of our resources in the school. Um, and really, I think those resources should go to the community. Um, how are we affecting the change within the community? How are we affecting where our students live and how they live their day-to-day -day lives that they're bringing into the school, um, and, you know, helping to create the conditions that are there. Um, and so I think that we'll see more advancement within education, within a school, within, um, yeah, within the district if we invest more in that um, community level. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that's mostly, yeah, the questions that I had for you. So is there anything that we brought up or talked about or questions I asked you wanted to go back to? Uh, probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> anything that went unsaid as far um, as uh, community involvement and schooling? I don't think so. Um, I think that there's a whole other conversation to be had about elected versus appointed school boards. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important to note that LSC is not like the school board, like there's mm -hmm. still an education school board in Chicago. Um, but there's a whole conversation to be had about the pros and cons. Um, of elected versus uh, mayoral appointed school boards and both of them, you know, a lot of people fall hard on one line or the other. They're both equally, can be equally as bad as the other. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people get up and armed when they hear about a mayoral appointed board and they think, you know, that's so undemocratic and it is. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that an elected one is any more democratic. Um, and so I think there's really interesting conversations to be had um, on that front. You know, that has to do with local control, um, but it's a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we should have it because, yeah, I think it's an important one um, and as someone who, you know, worked for Chicago Public Schools, and I, so I've worked under a mayor, I'm just going to say a mayor-controlled <laughs> uh, school district, and I've studied an elected school board in Los Angeles, the second largest city in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's, there's definitely pros and cons of each, so I guess with that, yeah, and I agree, it could be like a whole conversation in and of itself, but with that, that prompts me to think, to ask the question, what more power would you give uh, a local school council that they mm -hmm. don't already have? So to my point about needing more investment in communities, um, I think the rule about advisory councils that when a school is failing, we take away power from the LSC. Um, is just so counterintuitive to me. Um, schools that are, you know, by whatever metric you're picking that you decide to call failing, um, they don't need fewer resources, they don't need less support, they need more support. Um, so how do we help the LSC kind of make the right choices for the school? What kind of support do they need to make those choices? Because when a school is failing, that doesn't mean that suddenly the general school board for all of Chicago public schools is somehow better equipped to help this school. Um, and I'd argue that it's not the local school council that's failing the school anyway. Um, and so I think that that's a big change that I would make that local school council shouldn't lose their power when, um, when schools are quote unquote failing by whatever metric that that might be. Um, first, um, and you would have said what more power should local school councils have? Um, and you can think as big as you want to, like we're in fantasy land now, like if Colleen was in charge, <laughs> you know, what, what would the schools be allowed to, or the LSEs be allowed to take over decision-making power of? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go real wide with it for a second. Um, but I think that there's a really uh, interesting 
uh, possibility for elected versus mayoral appointed school boards that connects to local school councils. Um, and so one idea to kind of circumvent both um, issues, and we can talk about this at a later time because there's like a whole other podcast about information about this, um, but instead of having one or the other, having a nomination approval commission, like much in the way we do with the Supreme Court. Um, so selecting elected members um, to select mayoral candidates mm -hmm. For, um, for the school board. Um, so the mayor is still picking options, um, but it's elected a commission of elected people who are picking those options. Um, so one, it behooves the mayor uh, to pick people who are gonna be passed. Um, the people at large have some say in it because they've elected these people in the first place and you don't know prior to electing those individuals who will be on this commission. Um, and so it's a little bit more democratic in that way. Um, but also the people on this nomination approval commission, um, some of those should be people from local school councils. Um, they're elected too. And so we should have, you know, a community member from back of the yard serving on the nomination approval commission to help pick um, who the school board members are. So I think that they can be tied into that nomination and approval process in that way and should be taken seriously as an elected body. Because again, like I've said a number of times, they are the biggest source of power in Chicago and should be treated that way. Um, and so bringing them into the conversation in a very legitimate way because they are legitimately voted on a source of power within the city, I think would be important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, New York City, um, has a mayoral controlled <laughs> school <laughs> district as well. And they have, um, gosh, I'm gonna blank on the name. They're CECs, so they're Community Education Councils, I think is that what that stands for? Um, anyway, they have basically zero power and they've tried to, you know, organize the, um, the board, which is called a panel in New York City to have appointments by different people, but it's still because the CECs have such like basically no power. I think they can do zoning, that's it. Um, it still is like, it's a rubber stamp board. So, mm -hmm. you know, so it, I think it is, it's like, how do you make that model where it, at various different points in the system, there are people who can serve at a higher level. Um, and I do just want to note, like, I don't want people to walk away from this podcast thinking I'm all for mayor appointed school boards because of my comment about <laughs> Los Angeles. But I think it's, it's not like a black and white question, like some people characterize it to be. Absolutely. I mean, when, um, <coughs> when they were having, what year was that? There is the election, the man, uh, Ron Emanuel and Chuy Garcia election. Um, one of the biggest things on there was um, the elected versus appointed school board. And a lot of people, I think, in opposition, just a mayoral appointed just sounds so undemocratic that we must mean um, that we must mean that we want elected school boards. Um, but that is just definitely not the case, especially if you do any reading to some of the campaign finance stuff and the corruption that goes into having elected school boards. Um, you know, can be just as bad, um, maybe for different reasons, but just as bad as mayoral appointed. Um, and so there's, it's definitely not black and white. One of them is definitely not right and the other one's wrong. Um, and, you know, especially in a place like Chicago that, you know, we have our own issues with, you know, elections. Um, I don't think, you <laughs> no. know, I think it'd be naive to think. <laughs> I think it'd be naive to think that those same issues with elections wouldn't happen, you know, with a school board. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there's definitely some, a third option that has to be available because neither of those is really gonna do what we think it's gonna do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the pushback I think often comes to who ends up being appointed as far as their status in society, mm -hmm. as well as their experience not only just working with schools, but even sending their children to public schools is, yeah. you know, one of the big things that they get pushed back for. So, you know, I do understand where people are like, well, maybe we don't need billionaires who've never <laughs> sent their kids to public schools deciding how our schools should be run. Yeah. Um, but um, then with elected, sometimes you get real estate agents. You know, I think that happens more often in smaller um, school <laughs> districts. Um, but 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's on the surface level what you grab for, right? It's like, well, this person donated $50,000 to this mayor's campaign and now his brother is sitting on the board. Like, that's not right. Um, but I think in our haste, we forget that the people that are electing are also spending millions of dollars on their school board campaign. Um, and those people also didn't send their school, their kid to public school. Um, and so to your point, you know, I think, uh, we can't be too hasty and kind of putting down the one side to think that's not going to happen in some capacity on the other, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The um, time frame of my research in LA was during the most expensive school board race in United States history. $15 million went into the school board race. So. Crazy. And sometimes when you follow those dollars, they're coming from places that aren't even in state. Um, there oh, yeah. That's definitely true in LA because it's kind of seen as a um, incubator for the reform movement, mm -hmm. um, which sh I should clarify the current reform movement, which is about <laughs> school choice. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that like, yeah, I wonder people who, you know, in Chicago and like communities that are very for elected school boards, you, know, you wonder what kind of information is publicly available, readily available about kind of the cons of elected school boards. You know, I think, I think there just needs to be more education done about, you know, what could go well with elected school boards, but what also could, you know, go very, very wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We could go on about this one. Yeah. <laughs> Save it for another time. Yeah. Like I said, a whole different episode with probably someone who knows way more than I do. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be, yeah, I would gladly have someone on who could, you know, poke holes in either side. So maybe it'll be a several part later on down the line. Um, Cause I just think, I mean, decision-making in general, when it comes to schooling, you know, it's just something I'm interested in. Um, Obviously, you know, that's why I study policy. Who gets to decide is one of the questions <laughs> of this podcast. And that's the one that we're discussing today. So yeah, yeah we'll get to it again. <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. So anything else that was left unsaid? Any last comments? Um, I don't think so. I appreciate, you know, you asking me to be on this. Local school councils is something I've um, obviously been invested in since I uh, was teaching, but just something I really dug into um, at IU. Um, so I appreciate having the time to talk about it. All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. And um, yeah, thanks for joining us. Maybe we'll have you on here again. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you.